Welcome to Essential Viewing. I'm Christian Cuevas, and on today's episode, we'll be discussing Perfect Blue, the 1997 psychological thriller directed by Satoshi Kon. If you'd like to watch along with us, next weekend, we'll be discussing the 1985 film Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. We've got a great episode today, so thanks for listening, and let's get right into it. All right, and we are back for another episode of Essential Viewing. I'm Christian Cuevas here with Colby Ellen and Bryce Kramer. And today we'll be discussing the 1998 film Perfect Blue, directed by Satoshi Kon and starring Junko Iwao and Rika Matsumoto. Um, before we get into that, I want to remind you all to uh, check, check us out on social media at the uh, Essential underscore viewing Instagram. And also to drop us a voice message, we want to hear what you have to say about Perfect Blue and our roundtable, anything that you'd like to share your thoughts on us with. We want to hear it and we'll respond to it live on the air on the podcast. So before we get into Perfect Blue, let's head over to the roundtable. This is where we discuss the, the films, the television, the media we've been consuming in the week since we last convened. Uh, Cole, why don't you start us off? Oh, man, put me on the spot. Yeah, so my media consumption this week was um, I had not a hefty, hefty portion, really. Um, but the film I did watch was quite grand in scale. I was in the theater Friday night to see Roland Emmerich's Moonfall. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you guys also saw this like opening weekend. Sadly, I, I was I did, hoping someone saw it, but I wasn't going to go see it myself. <laughs> oh, man. Sadly, I didn't go to the... Um, the advanced screening on Thursday night to secure that limited edition Moonfall <laughs> NFT, <laughs> which I got, uh, you really I missed could, out. <laughs> I, I know I saw it. I was at work Thursday and I was like, should I book this just to get the NFT and like not go to the movie? Um, sadly, I didn't do that. But um, but yeah, I went and saw Moonfall. Um, I think at the end of our 2021 year in review episode, I said this is one of my most anticipated <laughs> movies. <laughs> um, and and like I was excited. I feel like um, I think I've seen a couple. I, I mean, I've seen Independence Day and I've seen 2012 because I think mm. th- those are both Emmerich films. You've seen Day well. After Tomorrow. I haven't. No, oh, I, at least I don't think so. That's the best one. Oh man. Um, we'll have to. T- maybe I'll check that out. But but Moonfall was like it was fun. It was really dumb. Um, I don't know if if I did. You, you guys didn't see it yet, I presume. No, I, I saw it. I saw it. Oh, okay. Well, I just wanted to point out one thing because, like, I, I was reading, it is doing horribly at the box office. <laughs> um, it is like a, a, it is basically like if the the budget or the, like the the what happens in the film like in, is analogous to how the film is actually doing at <laughs> the box office. <laughs> the the budget was like a hundred and forty million dollars, and I think it's made like. Three million dollars so far. Well, it'll probably make a hundred million, like in China. Yes, yeah, that's true, and, and that brings do a lot better overseas. And that brings me to my next point because this film is, I think, it was like one of one of the most expensive independent films ever made. I know Cloud yes. Atlas, I think, takes that cake. Um, but just some, just from like watching the film, I wanted to note a couple sponsorships. One is like NASA. I think Chris, you brought that up. Like yeah. NASA is like heavily featured in it. I kind of suspect that like SpaceX funded the movie in some capacity as well because they yeah. mentioned SpaceX and Elon Musk by name a lot. <laughs> um, uh, other sponsors, Lexus, the Japanese car manufacturer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Kaspers- Kaspersky Cybersecurity. 
Yes. <laughs> there were like some really is this, is this a movie or is this an advertisement? Did you just it, watch like a very expensive Super it, Bowl ad? I'm, I'm confused. No, like it was a bit of both. Yeah, <laughs> it it was. Um, it, it, I was thinking about it this morning. This is like it was the most gratuitous level of like product placement I've seen in a film. Second to um, I think whichever Transformers movie had TJ Miller and Stanley Tucci in it. I think that was maybe Darker the Moon. Um, there's that where like Stanley Tucci like holds like a Beats pill and like it like clo- zooms up close on it. And then Mark Wahlberg like busts open a Bud Light and like slams it when no, Chicago's getting destroyed. It's not Darker the Moon. Wahlberg wasn't in that is one it, yet. It was, it was like it was like one of the one of like the Whatever later comes after that films. one. I, I lose track after the, the third. I think it was the last night maybe. Um, but, but anyway, so, so yeah, it was, it was a good time. It's really dumb. Um, there are some pretty cool sequences, especially like the whole premise is the moon's falling out of orbit and it's like, oh really it, like <laughs> it starts to mess up with mess with gravity on earth. There are some cool sequences where like gravity's distorted and like, that's pretty cool. But, um, I, I don't want to take away too much from you guys. That's, that's all I watched. This have week, you seen so. the core? No, uh, that's where they have to like detonate a nuke. They have to, to like dig their way the to the Earth center core, of the right? Earth to detonate a nuke to start its rotation again. And oh, oh man. man, we watched it like great. in like my AP physics class. I don't know why, because the movie's complete gibberish, but uh-huh. it sounds like the same sort of thing where it's just so dumb that it's it's kind of fun. All right, well, Bryce, yeah. why don't you take it from there with the with your roundtable? Okay, so I've got I've got a couple things here in the dumb but fun category. I watched the first couple episodes of um, Murderville on Netflix. I don't know if you guys heard of this, but it's like is that like, like the improv thing? Yeah, it's like a mystery comedy improv show. Um, it's just a fun way to kill thirty minutes. But like the concept is that Will Arnett plays Detective Terry Seattle, um, and he. He like every week or every episode, they have to like solve a murder. And like there's like a celebrity guest who doesn't know the script or like doesn't know what the situations are going to be put in. So like the first episode was um, Conan O'Brien and like the second episode was Marshawn Lynch. Um, and it's just kind of oh. funny to see how like these people react to like these extreme scenarios they're getting put into. Um, so the improv is, is the fun bit of it. And it almost feels like kind of like that um, you versus wild Chris was watching in a sense where like they, they line it all up for you and you're supposed to also figure out like who committed the murder and then like the celebrity guest will try to figure it out also um but the, the improv segments are, are kind of funny and, and outrageous um it, it's a it's a it's I'm enjoying it for like a good quick 30 minute dumb watch um Bryce you said that was on Netflix yeah Oh man, they're 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 not even like writing content anymore. No. They're just improvising content. <laughs> it's like half written, and then they throw in the celebrity guest to see how much they enjoy it. It definitely doesn't. Um, it doesn't make Netflix, you know, worth that new twenty dollar a month fee. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. if you need something dumb to throw on, like while you're making dinner or something, um, it's there. They raised the price of Amazon Prime too. It's like one hundred and fifty dollars a year now. Or something yeah, like I saw that. <laughs> yeah. It's um, inflation. That's all the inflation. Yeah. And then um, the main thing I watched this week that I really liked was this A24 movie called The Humans. I don't mm, know if you guys yeah. have heard of this. Oh, is that the with Steven Amy Yoon, right? in it, right? Yeah, it's like Steven Yoon, Amy Schumer. Um, Richard Jenkins. Richard Jenkins. And then Beanie, Bernie Feldstein, Jonah Hill's sister. Um, yeah. It's based on like a play of the same name. So another movie based on a play, but... Unlike the tragedy of Macbeth, I really like this one. Damn. Um, I Damn. thought it was fantastic. I'd explain it as kind of like a um, 
existential horror movie. Um, mm. There are just straight up elements of horror in it in terms of like jump scares and like ambiance and that sort of thing. And especially like the whole ending sequence, which I, which I don't want to spoil in case you guys watch it. It's like, I think it was one of the best scenes from a movie in 2021. Um, it's very limited cast because, you know, it's it's similar to Sage, but there's just like these six, seven characters. But like the setting, the apartment they're in almost feels like the seventh character in terms of how like well it's composed and like developed um it's the plot is essentially it's just like this family has just gathered for their thanksgiving dinner in like this new uh, new york apartment Stephen ewan and beanie feldstein have moved into um but then kind of as the evening goes on you know more and more like family secrets come out and like things start getting crazier and crazier um i'm not i'm curious to see what you guys would think of it because the beginning does kind of feel similar to hand of god where um you're just like, oh, it's just kind of like this family gathering. Like, I don't get the big point, um, except for the fact that like the cinematography and acting is all really well done. Um, so I think it's, it's a another one where it's, it's a bit of a slow burn, but I thought the ending was like fantastic, and I just, I really, I really enjoyed it a whole ton. Um, so yeah, that's what I got this week. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, any, anything, any concept involving New York apartments is kind of scary by default. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say the one thing about the movie is that, like, the family has a lot of, like, financial problems. But, like, one of the core concepts of the film is, like, this couple has moved into, like, a two-story, like, New York apartment. Like, it's not very nice, but it's like, okay, they still have to be doing pretty well if they can afford this place. They need to be, yeah. like, extremely rich. Yeah, there, but, like, there's the, this... the apartment has, like, a lot of, like, light bulbs keep going off and, like, there's, like, leaks and, like, creaky floors. So, like, it's it's very somewhat unsettling, the, the space they're in. And, like, the, the ambiance is, like, it's very quiet for, like, New York. Um, I think that's kind of mm. part of the point. They feel very like isolated in this one sort of setting, you know, like in a real stage play, right? There's not like, I guess they could make it. So there's tons of like audio cues and special effects going on, but like it's very quiet besides what's just happening um, in the apartment with a couple notable exceptions, but mm. I highly recommend the movie. There's a there's a scene where one of the characters opens up the door and it's just Chris sitting at a desk in a room. <laughs> he starts screaming and they just shut the door. That's just it. close the door. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm trying to oh, record man. a podcast here. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll take over. Um, so I, I watched two movies, uh, one good and one bad. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I watched um, Drive My Car. Uh the bad one. Moonfall was a good one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, drive drive my car was pretty great. I mean, it's it's um I didn't realize this before watching it, but it's based on a short story of the same name by uh Haruki Murakami. Um I don't know if you guys have ever read Haruki Murakami, but like his so. his work is like very uh sort of surreal and like kind of explores like emotional concepts that are kind of like hard to pin down you know like a lot of people will write about like grief or right but like murakami doesn't he doesn't you know it's much more specific than that like the kind of the stories he writes are trying to get at like very sort of specific emotions and this this movie kind of explores the idea of like i don't want to spoil too much about it but like basically you have a character who's like recovering from something traumatic that happened to him and it takes him a very long time to do it and he goes through like an intense period of of like numbness before he's able to kind of like come to terms with what happened, right? And I, I think that similar to like Stalker, which we watched before, 
you know, this movie's three hours long, and I think that the runtime is very much like a storytelling tool. Um, the title of the movie should be interpreted very literally. Like, it, it, you know, it's really a lot of the plot centers around like a car being driven by someone who's not the owner of that car. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so like, yeah. Um, and and like, like I said, the, it, the movie like really like it owns up to how long it is. I'll give you an example. The opening credits of this movie do not start until one hour into the movie. <laughs> oh, man. That's wild. I was so confused because like they start the, saying... It sounds like the stalker like title drops were like yes. an hour in. It's like, stalker. Yeah. No, no, it's really... There's really actually... There's, I don't want to say it's too similar, but there are some similarities between it and stalker. And like it's kind of like also like a, um, a vibe movie. Um, but the vibes are like not happy vibes. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like pretty dark, you know? Um, mm. but I think the thing I appreciate about it is just like, I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, this kind of new, this new editing style where everything is like gotta be so quick, you know, like euphoria, for example, like it's like this rapid succession of like quick cuts and like disconnected scenes. You know, this movie does is this movie is content to like cut between two angles of, two characters talking to each other for like 20 minutes and like the effect that it has is it's almost like at, at times it's almost like it feels like you're watching this like super like high production value meditation tape or something like it, the, the movie just has this like it kind of just like washes over you like you could almost say that like nothing happens really but at the same time a lot does happen it's just that the way it's paced out it's like at times you're just sort of settled into this lull you know like I, by the end of the movie, I felt like I'd been watching it for like, you know, longer than three hours. Like I felt I didn't take a break. Like everyone else in the theater, like left at some point and came back. I didn't leave. So I just sat there glued to my chair and watched the movie for three hours. And it really, at the end, it felt like I was like, I feel like I've been watching this movie for like 15 hours, oh, but not man. in a bad way, <laughs> but like not horrible, not in a bad I way though. Like, I know that, that sounds bad. One, and now I'm like, Ooh, maybe I'll watch it at home. <laughs> no, I would recommend seeing it in the theater. I mean, I think that the, the grueling length of it is really like a dimension of of being able to like appreciate the story, and it's also interesting because it has a similar structure, um, like where it's it's based on um, so in the it actually is similar to Birdman, um, not not like stylistically, but just in the in the sense that like the characters are getting ready to put on a theater performance while also sorting out their personal problems at the same time, you know. Hmm. And then you have this kind of structure where, like, you know, so a lot of the movie is spent, like, with people reciting lines from this play, which is uh, Uncle Vanja by uh, Anton Chekhov is the play. Um, so, like, and you kind of have parallels between, like, what's happening in the theater and, like, the play and, like, what's happening in the real story. It's a good movie. I'll just leave it there. I really enjoyed it. But, again, it's long and it's, like, not necessarily an exciting movie to watch. Like, so, some people would definitely be turned off by, like how long and slow paced it is. Um, but if you can, you know, for me, I like that actually. I, I really like yeah. long, slow. Here, here on Essential Viewing, we are not some people. Yes. <laughs> we, we will sit through anything that is put in front of us. Okay, well, hang on, hang on. Um, and then uh, the other thing I watched was, um, you know, I, I, I headed to the, the Dolby Cinema Auditorium 8 at the AMC Times Square 
to participate in the Moonfall cinematic experience. They put this in Dolby. They didn't want to like keep putting Spider-Man on Dolby. <laughs> I saw it in oh, Dolby they, too. Yeah, they were they 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 kicked out Spider-Man for Moonfall, which I think was a good choice. Look, Moonfall is an awful movie. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's like genuinely terrible. And you know the thing is like for a movie about the moon getting possessed by uh, like, like a singularity, a basically. Singularity, like a demonic AI, and then like getting sent off course on a collision with the Earth. It's like a surprisingly boring movie. Like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> like they, they spent like so much time on like all these various like family, like little family relationship drama subplots that it was like there's like so many scenes of characters like 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 husband and wife arguments and like you know estranged father and son <laughs> like relationships like there wasn't even that much like moon based combat it, <laughs> it, it, it reminded me a lot of the um the the 20 the 2014 uh um what was i going to say the 2014 Godzilla movie with um yeah uh, Aaron Brian Taylor Cranston. Johnson and Brian Cranston it was like like that like you saw Godzilla for like less than half of the movie and most of it was like a yeah family drama um, yeah i was like where is the moon like why isn't it falling like why are we not on like we're, there's literally and also like every single shot in the movie was fake like even like the basic like like obviously like the shots of the moon falling are going to be cgi but even like basic shots of like people standing in rooms were like obviously like green screen or something like there's this one shot in the beginning where um uh Patrick Wilson's character is going to Griffith Observatory and he like pulls up on his motorcycle and like gets off and you see the observatory in the background and it's like so obviously like he's standing in front of like a wall. <laughs> yeah. There's a great line. I I really like Patrick Wilson. I don't know why necessarily. I I, like, I just he's like he's just like gen he's just kind of like a general. He looks like an everyman sort of. Um and there's a he has a line in the movie where he's trying to get his son like uh, he's trying to post bail for his son because his son gets yeah. arrested and his line is something like hey judge i've got a vintage bike and a classic mustang for <laughs> to post for collateral yeah. <laughs> it's just like I, I i don't know it's like it's not written well um not a lot of moon-based combat like chris mentioned if, if but I it's did, like it's kind of fun to watch how bad it is yeah if I, did, if I had to dive into cole psyche i'd say the reason he likes patrick wilson is probably because of um when he showed up in the fargo tv show uh that that could that could be part of it i think he's also uh, he's yeah, also in watchmen yeah yeah he's in watchmen but anyway. yeah there's it's interesting because there's this horrible like moment like maybe two-thirds of the way through the movie where like this like mystical computer program like explains the entire like premise <laughs> like backstory of the movie in like this five minute long like super like slideshow basically uh-huh. And like it just like it just feels like they were just making it up. It feels like they basically said, OK, we're going to write all this stuff and then like we'll figure out the plot holes. Like, don't worry about plot holes or anything, because we'll, we'll take care of them all in this one scene where the computer like explains everything to the audience. And it takes like over five, almost 10 minutes long. I felt like it took um, the other thing I want to say was that, like, the premise of this movie, like the way that it starts is like identical to the movie Don't Look Up. Like yes. pretty much like yeah, I was gonna ask, beat. what is the premier uh object about to smash into the earth film? <laughs> I mean, they're both like and Don't Look Up is better than this. <laughs> but I don't like that's obviously not like too much competition. <laughs> but uh 
Yeah. Probably don't look up if you want to see an object smashing into the earth movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's that's all I got for, for yeah. Roundtable. That was a lengthy Roundtable segment. I still prefer Armageddon. Yeah. I, I haven't seen that one, but probably any disaster movie would be better than this one, honestly. Um, all right. Well, let's... let's uh, Let's go over to the synopsis. Um, it's pretty, probably a pretty difficult film to to synopsize. Uh, Bryce, why don't you why don't you take a crack at it? Okay, here we go. Um, so I'm gonna just say the full spoilers here. It's a pretty short movie. We've already taken up a lot of time on the uh, round table. So essentially, we have we have our main character um, living in like the 90s in Japan. Um, her name is Mima, Mima? Kirigo. Yeah, Mima. yeah, Mima. Kirigo, she is like a pop, like a low tier pop star who like is, damn okay, no punches. <laughs> well, like she has like she's like a part of like a three three woman group. Like they they have like, I mean at least from what we saw in the movie, like they're very like few fans in the audience. Like she's not <laughs> performing in front of sold out you know arenas or whatever. But like that that's what she does. Um, and then she decides she wants to get out of that uh, that profession and kind of transition into acting. Um, so she announces she's leaving the the group, which is called Chom. Cham. 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 Yeah. Um, and then she gets cast in like a very small role in this kind of like murder procedural drama on television called um, Double Bind. Um, and then as this is going on, she is like kind of getting she gets a computer installed in her home because like she gets, she's been getting like these weird letters about um, like this website that she should look at. And it's back in like the early nineties. So she doesn't even know what a website is. Um, <laughs> so like there's that plot going on and then there's her trying to get into this acting profession. Um, and eventually this is a little content warning. I wanted to warn people out before we get going here, but like she gets asked to do like a rape scene in the show. Um, and then that happens and like it's it's very disturbing despite being like a simulated um rape but then after that happens like her psyche kind of starts devolving into like these two personas um one which is like back in the original uh sort of pop star persona where like she's kind of like this perfect person and then the other one is this you know actress persona um and these two are kind of like at odds with her in the movie kind of devolves into you aren't sure exactly what is going on in terms of <laughs> what is actually happening in the movie and this where it gets hard to give a synopsis um like people related to her working in the film business like start getting killed um and just a whole yeah like of, other people who work on the on the show yeah like like the, yeah. the the guy that writes the script for the show gets killed um yeah like the one of the producers or like one of her agents gets killed um and then eventually like it's i'll just say how it ends um it's revealed that her so there's like this one guy that's been like stalking her and he's the guy that's been like creating this website uh, let me just say <laughs> the creepiest looking yeah. man i think I've, I've ever seen at least in like an animated film yeah this is sure this guy is terrifying like he randomly like pop up like recording like videos of her um and she's he's the one that's been like documenting her like day-to-day -day life on this website and like saying things that like no one should know like unless she mima herself was writing them down and like the website is supposed to be like from like Mima's diary. Like the website is supposed to be like she's the one that's writing it, but she's not like this creepy guy is. Um, and then it's eventually been revealed. It eventually gets revealed that her her agent or like her publicist or something like that um, 
she has been like receiving letters from the guy that runs the website, like to do things, um, to like keep Mima's, um, public persona. Like, I don't know what the right word is like more innocent. Like she doesn't like that. She's like performing in this new movie. Like she doesn't want her to change her persona from this perfect pop girl to this more like serious, um, actor. So like she, mm-hmm. it's revealed like she's the one that's like been killing the people, and then eventually she like tries to have this like confrontation with Mima where she tries to kill her also. But um, like Mima, Mima doesn't get killed. She she fights her way out, and then like the movie ends with um, the the agent named Rumi like locked up in a, a mental institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like one detail I want to add from the beginning is that like I, I think it's it's implied or I, I mean I think it's basically the plot that like she doesn't actually want to leave cham and become an actress like she's kind of it's kind of her agents sort of foisted upon her you know um like she she really loves being a pop star and she loves singing like that's what she wants to do but her agents kind of sort of basically don't really give her any choice they tell her that the only way she'll have, have be able to have continued success is if she transitions to something more serious like acting and there's a lot of lines about how like pop stars aren't really worth anything anymore it's it's hard for pop stars to make money. No one cares about pop stars, blah, 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 blah. Um, that's like a recurring thing people say like throughout the movie, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but then like once she goes into acting, which is something that she doesn't actually want to do, right, and especially, you know, as she gets into filming these these uh, these more and more graphic and kind of violent uh, scenes of her being, you know, raped, that's like what kind of triggers this sort of disassociation of her personality which like it's sort of left ambiguous like we're unable to really tell like is this real is this part of the tv show is this that's why i had a hard time synopsizing yeah (laughs) yeah and it kind of like floats between all those different wavelengths like throughout the movie making it difficult to like exactly tell what's happening right um but yeah with that said let's get into the the bulls and the bears what'd you guys think overall about the movie what did you like what did you dislike Cole why don't you start us off yeah so I was I was bullish going in just because um and I think this has been a recurring trend in the last few episodes of the podcast I hadn't heard of this film before until you mentioned it last week Chris so I was excited just to see something new um I've heard of Satoshi Kon before and I know he's a pretty well respected uh like director and writer in terms of like Japanese animated films and I think he's only made four films total or he only made four films that he directed this um, was his debut also yeah Yeah. which is pretty nuts um so I was excited for that um I haven't I've you know dabbled most of my experience has been like you know (laughs) we've talked a lot off mic about like Evangelion like being like kind of a fixture and like we watching that anime series um I've seen a few Miyazaki films but nothing as like really dark and a and adult and and grim as this we watched um, akira also <laughs> I, yeah yeah that's true that was a while ago um but but yeah so so i was excited to kind of uh experience this aspect of like foreign animated film um and i i would say i, I liked it quite a bit um i was <laughs> confused or puzzled like the film i think is kind of disorienting at times or, or most of the time um, the first like 15 minutes or the, kind of the opening sequence I was really into because um, it starts out with Mima kind of performing her last show with Cham 
And then as she's she announces, you know, oh, I'm leaving. I'm going to become an actress. And then she kind of, you know, goes about some errands and goes home to her apartment and opens up some fan mail and then and, and you know, kind of receives this ominous message from someone saying, like, I can see into Mima's room. And then she gets a fax from someone <laughs> saying that she's a traitor. And then it, it kind of um, she looks out the window and then the camera like zooms out into the city. And she's kind of like left wondering who is out there, like looking her looking at her and watching her. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really cool kind of opening sequence um, that I that I enjoyed quite a bit. And and overall, I think that this film is very um, it while it is like pretty graphic and, and disturbing at some points. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think that um, the editing is also really top notch. Yeah, it's uh, there are a lot of sequences where they they really gracefully transition between kind of I don't want to say it's make it so binary is that there's like reality and fantasy in this film where, you know, you're not quite and you're not quite sure which is which necessarily. But um, there are sequences like that, that opening sequence I just mentioned where uh, Mima looks out her window and says, who are you? Uh, wondering who this person is and then that transitions into the next scene where that's her first line in this like crime procedural yeah um which is really elegant and that happens quite a bit and there's also some like disorienting sequences that are made more disorienting by the editing um so i i would say i i liked it overall i i will say that i after watching it um and like seeing the ending i had to go back and kind of read the synopsis to fully understand what was going on um, and I think it'll definitely warrant a rewatch for me in the future. Bryce, what do you got? Yeah, so I was pretty uh, bullish. Or no, I was pretty bare. No, bullish. <laughs> <laughs> Spit it out. God damn it. <laughs> I was pretty bullish, excited going into this because I'm, I'm not like the biggest anime fan out there. But, you know, I've seen my, like, cool, I've seen my couple of uh, Miyazaki films, a couple of series. Um, and I always have a good time with them. I love the the animation style with these kind of movies. Um I like going into something relatively blind, and I like this whole sort of psychological thriller genre, which has been like done by a lot of more Western directors nowadays. Like um, Darren Aronofsky is a big one coming to mind. Like, kind of, I feel like there's some like some like Black Swan parallels that can be drawn to this movie. Um, oh, I and mean, I think he said in interviews that like this this is like where he got the idea from Black Swan from. Yeah, so it was like Black Swan is one of like my all time favorite movies. Yeah. Um, so kind of coming back and seeing this as an influence on that was was super cool. Um, the only thing I was a little bit bullish about was that bearish. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm I'm not in the stock game as much in, as much as Chris and Cole are. Um, <laughs> the only thing I was a little bit bearish about was like in most of like the anime movies I have seen, like the final act usually does like something like insane and wild, which like I don't understand at all. Like the ending, like Akira comes to mind and i feel like sometimes at the end of these movies they kind of like jump the shark um <laughs> in terms of like how i interpret what's going on um thankfully that wasn't the case in this one um i feel like the ending kind of cleared everything up more so than made everything more confusing um so yeah i i liked it a whole lot um my one little negative on it was i got a little too wrapped up in like the mystery of what was going on during the movie so that like i kind of like forgot about like what this was trying to express like thematically. Um, I don't think that's really a negative. That just means like, like Cole said, it'd be a really good movie to revisit. Now you kind of know what the, the big picture is, is to be able to come back and have like a closer, closer look on what's going on. But it was one that I definitely thought about, you know, a lot like this morning and and right after finishing watching, trying to like 
piece together, you know, what everything meant. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, I really liked it. I think also the film's runtime really lends itself well to that because it's it's so short. It's like 80 minutes or so. Um, so you could watch it and then like rewatching it is not that much more of a time investment. Yeah, I, I was going to yeah. say another thing I really liked about like, like I, I like the band's visit a lot because it's a very brief movie, but like it packs a lot into it um, without, you know, wasting much time. And I feel like this is very similar. It's a brief movie, but there's a lot, you know, you can analyze it and look at here. Um, so all, yeah, all, I mean, all together, a really, a really good film. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for like long movies, but there's also something to be said for movies that are just like they're precise, you know, like 80 minutes, get in, like do major damage and like mm -hmm. get out and it's quick. Um, and like like this movie, you know, for me, obviously I picked it. I've seen it before, but, you know, it was a while ago, maybe like four years ago I saw it. And I think that at the time, you know, also it was like, you know, my first viewing, but I don't know if I was able to really fully appreciate like how like next level this movie is in terms of like the editing and just like kind of grafting these sort of parallel storylines into like this one sort of cohesive um, like emotional arc. And I think that's the, the kind of the trap that it's easy to fall into with this movie is it's like, you know, it's kind of like a roller coaster, right? It's like jerking you left and right, you know? And it's like, it's easy to like, if you're trying, if you try too hard to like, follow along with like the exact like plot points of the various storylines and like the TV show. Um, Cause I also do some things where it's like, there's, there's a scene for example, near the end where it's the TV show, but they've changed the lines so that the dialogue applies to the real characters. Mm -hmm. And then she like wakes up and then you see the scene again and they're saying the names of the characters in the TV show instead, you know? Um, so like, it's easy to like get lost in that sort of labyrinth. Um, so uh, this is a movie that definitely benefits from a rewatch just because you're able to kind of take a step back and see like the overall arc more than like the, the fine details, you know, like the first watch, it's good to, to look at the trees very closely. And the second watch, you kind of zoom out and you see the whole forest, you know? Um, so like for me, like the editing of this movie is crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. Like what they've done with the editing also like, you know, it's it's interesting to talk about like cinematography in the context of like an animated movie because obviously there's not a camera, but like composition, I'll call it, like is is also like next level. And like, there's actually like shots from this movie like have been like stolen by like, you know, Darren Aronofsky, for example. There's a shot of um, uh, Mima like in a bathtub, and she like screams under the water, and Aronofsky oh, yes. like one yeah. for one recreated that shot in uh, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, so uh, you should was, go check out the comparison. Back on yeah. your, um, original yeah. essential viewing episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, like I think there's just like a gold mine of just like just like cinematic like flavor in this movie. And I think it's one that's like probably like infinitely rewatchable, you know. Um but I guess like that that does sort of I think the one kind of point that's coming out in our early discussions of this is this element of confusion. Um, and like, I, I kind of want you guys to elaborate on, on the confusion <laughs> and like, say like, you know, did it, did it stop you from enjoying the movie or do you just feel like, um, do you feel like it, it was maybe too much to the point where it was overdone? I'll give an example. I'll just talk a little bit more. Like I watched an interview with Satoshi Kon, who, by the way, he actually, um, he, he died in, in 2010 mm -hmm. of uh, pancreatic cancer. cancer. Right? Yeah. yeah. 
um, at, at 46. Oh, wow. Uh, which is, yeah, really sad because you, you know he would have been, you know, he would, he'd be doing some awesome stuff <laughs> to this day <laughs> if it weren't for the case, if, you know, it weren't for that. But, um, you know, in the interview, he was talking about how, like, you know, he didn't really see it as confusing. I mean, obviously he made the thing, but like <laughs> <laughs> he was very dismissive. They were asking like, don't you think it's a bit confusing? He was like, no, like we, we just, we didn't think it was confusing. We just like just wrote a normal, he was like, we didn't do anything special here. We just did our <laughs> usual thing and we didn't think it was very confusing. He, he was very dismissive to the idea that it was confusing. Um, mm -hmm. But um, you know, like, what do you, what do you guys think? Like, do you guys think it's an obstacle? Do you think it detracts from the movie that, that it's confusing? I think I think it detracts like a little bit, but only for the initial viewing in terms of like, you know, when I watch Black Swan, like it's not necessarily confusing, but it's kind of portraying some of the same ideas in terms of like a fractured psyche. Um, but like at the end of the Black Swan, like I have like no questions. I was still like fully connected to the character, like the whole movie. Um, whereas this one, like I, like I mentioned in my my initial reaction like i got i got pulled out a little bit because i was trying to actually piece together what was going on from scene to scene and i don't think it like subtracted for me like saying oh no this this movie was no good it just maybe subtracted for me missing out a bit in my first watch and this kind of gets to the point of should movies be one and done should movies be rewatchable for you to get the full picture i think um in this case like when the movie ended i wasn't like oh what happened like i still like the plot came together for me in the end, I wasn't like, oh, this still doesn't make any sense. Like it, it all made sense yeah. they, once they laid it out. So I don't think mm -hmm. it's an issue. But after the movie ended, I needed to, you know, think about it a bit more. And like I said before, it'd be, be a good one to revisit. So I think maybe it, it hurts a little bit for kind of having that emotional impact in your first viewing. Um, but I don't think it's too bad of a, a problem with it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, I, I don't think it was too much of an obstacle. One thing I actually kind of appreciated about the film, we mentioned earlier this very disturbed, kind of creepy looking man that it ends up kind of filming and, and appears to be stalking Mima throughout the movie. And it's not like a, he's introducing like the first scene. And so you see him and you can tell like, okay, something is kind of off with this guy <laughs> and he's present throughout the film. And he it, it kind of makes the viewer think that he's a, a red herring in a way like he's artificially like put there to make it seem like he's the person behind this stalking and this kind of psychiatric or like this. Um, I don't want to say haunting that Mima's going through, but this uh, kind of experience that she has. And to an extent, he is like he is kind of following her. He is stalking her. He is recording her. But. Um, I, I just appreciated that he was there right away. It could the film could have easily fallen into a trap of like being some kind of mystery who done it, and yeah. and then had this like revealed this guy in the end and be like I was the one stalking you all along when like the viewer knows that the viewer saw it and kind of can infer from that right away. Well, I mean, there, there um, is still the mystery of like okay, it was actually Rumi, her agent, who was like doing all these things. But yeah, there's there's no mystery that yes. this guy is the one that that's making the website. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, Bryce, you mentioned that earlier, and I don't I don't think that was the case. And maybe Chris can clarify this. I think that the guy was was like Rumi was just leveraging this guy and like kind of using her. But Rumi was the one that was actually publishing these things online, I believe, because um, she was there were some things that like Mima said that were published on the website, like literally no one else could have heard except for her agent, I, th I believe. Mm. Oh, um, like she was sending him letters to post these specific quotes 
that or I, or I don't I think there was oh, one boy. scene we're still you... confused we're still confused well here's okay I have a t- I have a wildly different take on this movie okay. please go ahead I actually it. I don't really believe the um the ending <laughs> like, oh okay <laughs> I don't I don't really believe the like neat little bow that they put on it at the end so uh-huh. like like look, the thing about this movie and I think like it sort of highlights a difference between like you know the like American cinema and like at least from what I've seen of like Japanese cinema and like you know especially you know anime like I think that in American movies you have a, a you have much more of a focus on like the structure and the plot of the film right you know you, mm-hmm. people you're very interested in like what happened what did this what did character A do to character B like where is character B after having that done to them and how are they going to fix it and you know I mean it's it's very structural right and i think that like in i think i feel like from what i've watched that when you look at the japanese side of things there's a lot more of a focus on sort of the emotional arc of the characters and they they are willing to sacrifice coherence of the story to achieve like a greater level of like kind of ex- expression of the emotional arc of the characters so what i feel like is that like focusing on the uh the, the actual kind of blow-by-blow blow plot is a mistake because if you look at it, every scene sort of ties into the overall story of, like, how uh, Mima is is sort of struggling to retain her identity or figure out what her identity is after kind of having the, the sort of creative outlet that she loves of singing and being a pop star taken away from her, you know? So going back to, like, the central mystery, like... I don't, I don't really, like, I was actually surprised watching the ending that, like, I, I I thought that there was something in the last shot that, like, hinted at the fact that, like, maybe the ending wasn't real. And I didn't see anything. When she looks anything. in the rearview mirror? When she looks in the rearview mirror, yeah. Because I was like, I was like, surely there's something in that shot that hints it. But there wasn't, right? But she says, like, I'm real. She, like, says, yeah. no, this is real. <laughs> I know, but like, I just don't, I just don't buy it. Like, I don't, I don't buy it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so like, I think like, as far as how her thoughts were getting on the computer and how the character's name is Mr. Me Mania, <laughs> which I think is pretty <laughs> funny, how Mr. Me Mania was able to like understand things, I do not know, nor do I have an opinion on how, um, I, th- I, I think that her, her, her personality, which was a pop star, like disassociated from herself in a supernatural way and began trying to kill her in order to reclaim the pure, you know, un untarnished pop star Mima as opposed to the the actress Mima who's, you know, tarnished her 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 sheen of pop star, you know, her pop star image by participating in these 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 gruesome scenes for the TV show. You know, mm-hmm. that's my interpretation. And I just kind of look, I mean, the director even said in the interview, he was like, yeah, we did some things to make it clearer than we were originally intended, you know? So that's like the one criticism I I have is like the Scooby-Doo ending, you know, where the villain is unmasked. (laughs) I was was getting some like Death Note vibes from the early, like reading the website. Like I thought the website was like telling her like, this is what your day will be tomorrow. Tomorrow you will perform again with your band. Like tomorrow you will step out of the the subway with your left foot um but that that wasn't the case i think to me how i interpreted it is different from chris i think like there was some sort of collaboration between 
me mania and her agent Rumi that were like both of them didn't want her to shift her persona so like both of them are trying to like fight against this this shift from from pop star to to actress and they kind of collaborated to make all these things happen it's a little unclear on the specifics of, of scene to scene but um yeah that, that's what I, I saw watching it yeah i think just to kind of explain or at least the my my understanding was the the motivation for each of the two kind of like culprits so you have me mania the, the weird stalker guy he was just like kind of obsessed with her maybe sexual i think sexually and like wanted didn't like that she was doing this these like darker kind of like dirty uh scenes and like taking i think there's a scene where like she's or there's a a scene in the film where she's just like photographed naked for like a magazine spread or something i wasn't really sure and so he's kind of just like all this this like pure person is being tainted and then it seemed that rumi her agent didn't like that she was transitioning out of this pop star um identity to like more of a serious actress because i think and this wasn't really clear to me either, but I got gleaned this from the, the summary of the film on Wikipedia that Rumi was also previously a pop idol. And yeah. she was like maybe fighting, like didn't want to see someone that she represented fall down or leave that identity and like wanted to kind of live vicariously through. Oh, I completely uh, missed Mimas. that. No, there were I, a couple I, of lines where they where they um, where the other manager, the other agent like kind of said that to her like oh she she, she, her career doesn't have to go the same way yours did or something like that okay Um, see i think i I missed those and i only got those kind of in retrospect but um yeah yeah, so in terms of like i think it is still a little ambiguous i or like not really clear uh how if they were working together or if i i think that rumi was manipulating this like stalker to kind of like especially in the final scene where he is trying to like assault her and then she hammers him into like paralysis or something um right but uh i one thing i i, I did think about and, and to your point chris about this like scooby-doo style ending is i was really actually kind of surprised by how they tried to like button it up um yeah. especially because you start to see mima like have these visions of her former self in her like pop idol kind of like dress and she's like jump floating around the city and like yeah. doing all these really unrealistic things that like a normal person couldn't. But then in that final scene, it's very clear that she is like has to kind of abide by the laws of physics because it's an actual person trying to kill her. And the yeah. only way you're that's ind- indicated is by seeing Rumi dressed as Mima, like her reflection in the mirrors or the right. windows throughout the city, um, which not to get on like a tangent but i was thinking a lot while watching this film about the merits of it being an animated film versus being like you know live action um because the whole time i I mean i was thinking about requiem for a dream black swan and like being like okay i don't typically see this type of psychological thriller animated and i could think of how they would do all the same things live action but I think that the fact that it is animated makes it unique and it also like allows you to have these more disturbing sequences or like these shots that would be very difficult to create in live action. Yeah. And it kind of like plays into the the budget of the film being very small or fairly small and like being able to make the most out of the medium you're in and also still tell like a really impressive story that would cost like probably 10 times as much or 100 times as much. I was reading that this was originally meant to be like a like a direct to video anime huh. movie, like not for like theater, oh, wow. theaters or anything. But then like I think like it, the end product was like so fantastic that like it was looking like it was going to be so great that like they they pumped some more money into it and then wow. ended up going out to like 
festivals wow. and stuff like that. So like the kind of crazy history of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, just to backpedal for one second, I wasn't saying that I don't believe that the, the, um, the whole situation with Rumi and how Rumi was kind of orchestrating all this. I'm saying that, look, all the things that you think happened happened, right? Like she did have an, a, like, like, you know, her part of her personality did disassociate from herself and try to kill her, but also oh, yeah. Rumi did participate in it. Like, I think all the things happened because the real, like the real story is the fact that like, her switching from being a pop star to an actress triggered this identity crisis. And that identity crisis expressed itself in many different ways in parallel, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just, and I think like, I think that, you know, as far as the ending, it does feel like a bit of a compromise. Like it feels, it feels like a compromise, you know? And I think that, I think that's like the one thing, if I was going to change one thing about this movie, I would be like, Satoshi Kon, like, give give me the ending that you actually wanted because I know that it wasn't that ending. And he said it in the interview that I watched. He was like, yeah, we, we dialed some things back. I know I could see that in the ending. It felt like we have to throw a bone to the people who want, you know, to be able to leave the movie and be able to say how it ended. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I just don't think that was necessary. As far as what your point about the animation, like, and, like, animation versus live action, like, I think that's pretty interesting. I think that, like, yeah, you could definitely do all these things. It, in live action, but like doing them, you know, the anime style, I, I've always felt the reason why I like anime is because I've always felt that like as far as like cinema storytelling does, it just it just opens up some like new possibilities. Yeah. You know, sure. of things that like you can do them, but they can't be so perfect in live action as they are in anime. Like there's an amazing, amazing moment at the end where She's uh, she runs out into the street to save Rumi and then the, the truck is coming and the headlights are coming. And for a second, it's like she's standing in front of the, the cheering crowd at one of her concerts mm-hmm. and the headlights are like spotlights in the stadium just for like an, like a half a second. Right. You hear the yeah. roar of the crowd. But then it's like, oh, it's a semi truck again, you know? Yeah. And like you can do that live action, but it's not going to be as perfect as it was. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's like the the beauty of of like you know animation. And obviously, this isn't just any this isn't just any animation. Like this is animation like at a very high level of skill yeah. and precision. Like the hand drawn like animated Japanese yeah. style just feels like so, yeah. so timeless. Like this movie could come out twenty years ago. It could come out today, right? And you would still get the same kind of feeling and and atmosphere from it. Versus like 3D ruined animation versus like, you know, your Ice Age like looks like crap <laughs> yeah. like now yeah, and when it 3, came out versus like 3D like, ruined animation. <laughs> this 3D looks was the worst thing to happen. Yeah. <laughs> there's one thing I this is kind of an, an aside, but um, there's like a specific like type of shot or like composition or kind of almost vibe that I get from some like watching some anime. Um, and I got it in the beginning of this film. And also, I think it's in the first episode of Evangelion, like the the character that's like walking or biking home alone on like the streets of, of Tokyo, like late at like in the like during like sunset, I think specifically during the first episode of Evangelion. Um, yeah. There are like cicadas that are like buzzing in the background. And yeah. it just like sets this like vibe that when I'm every time I watch that, I'm like. I don't know what it does. It like really affects me. Like it makes me yeah. think of like 
you know, a hot summer's day and just like yeah. you like returning home by yourself yeah. and like going to relax. And like it's there's something about it. And I think definitely like the visual aspect of it really lends itself well to it. Shots and I just of, love um, seeing it every time. Shots of power lines is another one of those yes. things. There's always yep. power lines. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I was just like that was just like such a vibe. And I really enjoyed that aspect, at least in the beginning of this film. Go ahead, I don't Chris. know. I mean, I, I think I mean, it sounds like. You know, you guys are definitely due for a rewatch of this. It almost yes, feels I, like it. it, 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 it next take, week on Essential Viewing, we will be discussing Perfect Blue uh, again. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 Bryce. It's my pick. <laughs> they should just put the, they should just, on Amazon, they should just have it so that when you press play, the movie just plays twice. Like, yeah. I should have bought it instead of renting it, but I should have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you still got um, time. And I mean, I don't know when you watched it. Maybe you still got time. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I don't know. It sounds like we've, were there any like final points or like, I, I don't last know. call <laughs> last. Call I think so for alcohol. Um, some, some moments I wanted to mention, just kind of focusing on the editing. Like there was this one moment where, um, I'm not exactly sure who it was like the creepy photographer guy who, mm-hmm. as they, they said in the movie is really good at, uh, getting them to take their clothes off, getting the models to take their clothes off. He, um, he gets killed, doesn't he? He's one of yeah, the... Yeah, he gets killed, yeah. and that's what I was going to talk about. His uh, murder scene, because it's like... That, for me, was like the peak of just like the style of this movie, because, you know, it starts out with like, you know, he's like the... Uh, I forget exactly who who, who's, who kills him. Is it is it... It's kind of unclear who kills him, because I feel like you see like many different people killing him, but basically it starts with him getting stabbed, right? An and then pick. the stabbing sound yeah, with an ice pick. But then like they start cross cutting between like him getting stabbed and and like all these like close up shots of like different parts of her naked body, like during the photo shoot. Right. Yeah. And you start hearing the camera shutter sound and then the stabbing sound and the camera shutter sound like fuse into like one sound. And they're just cutting between him getting stabbed and there's blood going everywhere. And then there's like just like her like on this bed with like the sheets posing for the photos and the flash of the cameras going off like that for me is like if you wanted to encapsulate like the kind of style that I love to see in movies and just like one sequence, it's that like that's like I don't know how long of that sequence like, like a minute, two minutes. That's like two minutes of just like perfect cinema like for me. You know, like I could watch that moment like over and over and over again and just soak in like how perfectly put together it was. It's interesting because Satoshi Kon, he started out as a painter. Um, huh. And he said wow. in the interview that I watched, I'll send you guys this interview, but he said that everything in this movie came out. They asked him, like, was there anything that turned out differently than how you visualized it? And he said, no, everything in the movie oh, wow. is exactly as it was visualized, you know? And like, so you, you can see the power of this guy's vision is just like on a, on another level, you know? And it's like, it would have been interesting to see him directing some live action stuff, you know, especially like with like, you know, big American budgets, you know, because he would have no doubt been going to the next next level if you can see what he's doing here with this kind of small budget animated film. Yeah, um, I'm definitely excited to, to watch his other kind of feature films that he yeah. made. The other one, one I had heard of after doing some reading last night was uh, Paprika. Yeah. Um, and I watched a scene from it just on, that was on YouTube and it looks like wild. And it was I think it came out maybe 10 years after this. And so like the animation is even like more fluid and like and looks much 
cleaner and better. Not that right. this one film looked bad, but there definitely was like more money. Well, time. you know that movie. I haven't seen that movie, but that movie. He the, the whole spinning hallway thing that in Inception and in a lot of things actually, uh-huh. like the scene in Inception where they're fighting in the in the spinning hallway is mm-hmm. like almost like a shot for shot copy of a scene from Paprika. Yeah, oh, I think wow. even the, the the premise of Paprika is similar to that of Inception. I'm, yeah. I'm saying that the um, the character design and animation director for that movie was the same one that worked on Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away. So, mm. <laughs> oh, okay, it's gonna look gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but this guy is like your he's like your favorite director's favorite director. I feel like. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> yeah. Um, couple couple last points I had. Um, I really liked seeing that vintage Macintosh get installed <laughs> in her apartment. I thought that was super funny. Um, the, the scene where the, the photographer gets killed, I, I think like when the person like knocks on their door, they're like delivering a pizza or something. And I just thought it was funny. Like the pizza box is like big body pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that. I just thought that was like a really funny little detail. Um, I feel like we missed talking about like a lot of like the thematic elements of that of this movie, which is a little unfortunate, but um, well, let's thought, not miss it. Let's not miss it. Yeah, I thought it was super. Oh, there's like a lot going on here. Um, it's super cool showing like this kind of idea of how we see ourselves versus how other people perceive us. You know, even beyond just kind of like the pop star persona. Like, there's that great editing in the beginning between like she's giving this performance on stage to all the people like looking at her and like cheering for her, and then like it cuts between that and her just like buying fish food her buying milk and like it, it switches between like this her normal life kind of like walking around and her on the stage and there's also like a bit where it's her first day performing um acting at the, the, the at the tv studio and like she only has this one line but like she kind of thinks everybody is is having this different picture of her thinking like she shouldn't be here as she like walk, looks around the studio and sees everybody like whispering like we don't know if they're right. talking about her or not but like in her head her head they are so kind of like that um, pressures and kind of expectations she's she's feeling during this this scene is, is really displayed really well um then i think another bit is just kind of like i'm not an expert in this especially in, in terms of japan but kind of like i think there's a little bit of a stigma in japan in terms of like getting help in terms of like mental health um hmm. i was just reading a couple articles i don't want to go too deep because like i'm not an expert but like there's some bits in this movie where she will say like um you know, shouldn't, shouldn't we get help? Shouldn't we do something here? Like, this seems like something really bad is going on with like, in terms of like the letter getting opening and like an explosion. And then everybody's like, oh no, it's not a big deal. <laughs> no and one then, got hurt. And then she's like, you know, this, this website, this is pretty disturbing. Like, I feel like I need to talk to somebody. We need, feel like we need to get somebody to look at this and like, oh no, it's, it's not a big deal. Like you'll be fine. Um, so I feel like there's kind of this, this minor theme in, in terms of like, you know, she should have been getting like assistance or help for what's going on to her. And it kind of gets like shoved aside and, and pushed, pushed aside um, because yeah. of, like kind of the stigma towards towards getting help for that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, I, I think part of that might also just be character motivation, because I'm pretty yeah. sure the per- the person that was telling her it's fine was was Rumi, who was the person <laughs> kind of behind it all. So that's just that's just gaslighting at that point. But <laughs> but I think you're, you're you're correct in saying that, Bryce. I think there are some like emphasis on working culture in Japan is pretty. um uh can be kind of dark sometimes and and that may have fed into yeah it's kind of like you should be able to like do well yeah. in your work environment like you shouldn't need to get any help and it's kind of the same thing here like oh no you should be able to get past all these obstacles for you transitioning into this new job we're like no like she should be able to go 
go get help with these things. People kind of push her away from it. Hmm. Yeah. I want to uh, jump in on the themes conversation for a second before we we close out our last call here. Yeah. Because um, yeah. I, think, I think that one thing about this movie that's interesting is that, like, I feel like there's new themes that didn't exist when the movie was made, but that apply very well to this movie. Like, like this movie kind of is, could evolve to become a commentary on things that were not a thing when the movie came out is what I'm saying. You know, when you think about like this age of like, you know, social media and people like carefully curating their image online yeah. and how like your online sort of curated persona diverges from who you actually are as a real person. That's obviously like super encapsulated in this movie. You know, also another idea is like the idea of like toxic fandoms, you know, and like how you have like, you know, look at like something like Star Wars where you have like certain casting decisions being made and like the fans just like attack because they're so concerned about protecting like whatever their idea is of like the purity of like the original sort of thing, you know, and they're afraid of like new iterations on it diverging from what it was like supposed to be originally, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing against Star Wars fans in general. I know I mean, we, we have some presence here on podcast. the podcast. We <laughs> talked about a couple of weeks ago in terms of another franchise, but I'll, I won't dive too deep into that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's a great example, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's like I feel like, you know, that's also something that like, you know, you could even say like, you know, you could even go so far. I'm not necessarily going to go that far myself, but you could go so far as to say maybe there's a commentary on like, religious fundamentalism you know and like those kind of ideas and like people maybe doing a certain thing and of of idea of like preserving like you know strict like religious moral codes you know uh you could even maybe draw some parallels there but i I just think that like this is a movie that probably you know it's interesting because it was made like around the the dawn of the internet and in a way kind of like sort of almost predicted some of the ways that like internet culture has evolved you know you look at like mima's room or the website like now we all have a yeah our room page online where <laughs> people can go to read our thoughts right like it, it kind of feels so. a little bit like network in that sense where like network like predicted the future of like cable news and yeah. just like predicted the future of like online personas and online culture <laughs> yeah cole what, what do you got for for the last call um. N- nothing too much. I will say, and this is maybe ties into thematic elements a bit, but um, there's a specific scene early on in the film where Mima, I think, has a call with her mom. And as someone who recently kind of transitioned jobs and had to have that experience of explaining why you're doing a thing to your parents when they may not uh, necessarily agree with it or not fully understand what you're doing, that really resonated with me. Again, that's not really a thematic element. It was just something that like I saw that I was like, oh, wow, I can 100 percent relate to that. And kind of this this um, and maybe that gets into I've heard a lot of people that are in kind of social media, like online, new age, new media space, like having to explain to their parents like what they're doing or Mm -hmm. explaining to just their peers what they're doing and how that can be kind of a, a challenge at times. And maybe I thought that was like a good representation of that here having Mima try to explain to her parents like oh you I have this good job as a pop star it's what I like to do but you know these other people are telling me I should become an actor and and you know there's also some some conflict there she's doing something she doesn't necessarily want to do but Mm -hmm. she she's been told is good for her um so that that was just the last point I wanted to make Mm, okay well with that said let's get into the ratings all right Bryce why don't you start us off 
Okay, so like I said in the initial, like I really like this. I don't think there's a lot more to expand upon here. Um, I do think it's not quite a perfect score for me just because of kind of how I got pulled away from the movie, you know, trying to, maybe it's my own fault, kind of getting wrapped up and piecing together the, the scene to scene as to what was happening. Um, but as, as a whole, like this is a really, a really amazing film. Um, it, I, I enjoyed seeing how it was kind of like laid the groundwork for some of my favorite directors nowadays, like Darren Aronofsky. Um, you know, like the editing, the, the animation is all super well done. Um, my only my only drawback is I, I kind of got pulled back a little bit emotionally in terms of like trying to piece together what was happening. So, you know, maybe on a second viewing, it might go to a perfect score for me. But I think for right now, I'm just going to leave it at uh, a still a very good four and a half stars. Oh, man. All right. Cole, what do you got? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, there, I have a greater philosophy about this, Chris, but I want, I want you to weigh in your score first, if you don't mind. Oh, all right. All right. Well, you know, I mean, for it's interesting because I actually I agree with Bryce. When I first watched this movie, which was in a packed movie theater um, here in New York um, many years ago, uh, I, it also wasn't five stars with me. I was I, I kind of just walked away from it. I was like, oh, that was cool. But I don't I don't really understand what they were doing there. Um, so like, I, I, I can see, you know. I think your your opinion of it is actually higher than than mine was on first viewing. Um, obviously, on second viewing, and also like having watched many more movies and just kind of I don't know studied movies more in the four years that have followed since the first time I watched this. Like for to me, from this perspective, it, it it's a masterpiece. I see it as a masterpiece. The only criticism I have of it is the the slight cop out of an ending that gives a neat kind of bow. It feels like a compromise um, to the people who, you know, for the people who who are going to get frustrated by an ambiguous ending, which has never bothered me when movies have an ambiguous ending personally. So, but I don't think that takes away. I mean, I think they've they've the level of craft and the level of just like this like cerebral kind of philosophical and just precise filmmaking that they achieved for you know, most of this movie up until like literally the very ending, like the last two shots is so high that I don't think the ending takes away from it overall. Um, this is a movie that I'm going to be watching again and again. You know, I, I this is one of the, this is like the one movie where I feel like I want to memorize this movie. Like I want to watch oh, it man. enough times that I can like <laughs> go to sleep and like picture it in my head, you know? Oh. So <laughs> I don't know if I want to see some of the things happening during this movie while I'm sleeping, but that's, that's just me. <laughs> Um, so, you know, for me, upon second viewing, this is definitely a five-star movie. All right. I just wanted to get that out of the way, Chris, because I think that the person <laughs> that picks the film has the, the power to potentially skew the vote if sure, uh, sure. if they go last. Um, but 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 any, anyway, I, that's, I don't want to get into essential politicking. Um, I agree with many, many of the points that you guys both presented here just now, um, specifically Bryce's. I think this film is also... Uh, it, it would it definitely warrants a, another rewatch. And for me, when a film gets five stars, I think I need to watch it um, more than the the initial first viewing. Uh, so I, I'm a, I'm very comfortable giving this four and a half now with the option for a rewatch and and may reassess after that. So I'm going to be rating this film four and a half stars. Wow. So if and I'm, that if my, that puts us there, that might be my, uh, yeah. that's fourteen, right? That's 14. 4.5 plus 4.5 plus 5. You got to carry the 7. Uh, 14 <laughs> carry the stars. Seven. 
<laughs> oh man we, we need a special go. like six star movie for when it's five stars you know after your initial viewing um yeah right <laughs> like the the five and it's like highlighted in gold versus the five and they're just white stars something like that the s tier film <laughs> right yeah so you heard it here first perfect blue is yet another film to be entered into the the pantheon. Chris the is just racking up his, his his points on the scoreboard at this point. It's not. It's I'm, not I'm noticing. I'm noticing a trend where any film with the title that has blue in the title makes it in. We've got Blue Velvet, <laughs> Blue Bayou, and Perfect Blue. So, yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh that's, man, that's a good, good point. Uh, I've got to. Well, we'll watch Blue Ruin next. Yeah, that'll next time. that'll ruin. The show. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, whatever you do, do do not Google Blue Films. <laughs> oh God! All right, thanks, Bryce. I, I'm not going to do that now. Um. Well, All right. I it's think pick. Uh, it's my pick, and yeah. so um, I've been hyping this up for a while, and I wanted to, you know let you guys know that um we're gonna be staying in japan for next week's film pick and um i actually was hoping to have uh our special guest join us that'll be or that's gonna be joining us next week join us today right now to uh introduce the film But hello everyone. There Whoa. he is, right? Are you? <laughs> there he is. Whoa. What hey, Leon. is happening? Whoa. How's it going, Leon? <laughs> wait. Wait, how is this possible? <laughs> don't don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Leon, okay. would you like to tell the guys what film we'll be watching for the podcast next week? For sure. Next week's podcast is Mishima, a life in four chapters. Oh. The 1985 film directed by Paul Schrader. We're going to go back. We're going to be savoring the Schrader flavor again. I think this is the first time on Essential Viewing that we'll be having a repeat director presented. So um, you heard it here first, folks. Thank you, Leon, for joining us uh, this this morning to, oh. to present which film we'll be watching. Um, th- uh, just as some background, this film is a, a biographical drama that it depicts the life of famous Japanese writer Yukio Mishima. I wanted to include Leon on this episode because um, Leon and along with Chris and myself have read several of Mishimo's books. You got some reading I, to do, Bryce. I'm the odd one out <laughs> no. here. I got to watch and, a movie and read a couple books by next four week. books. <laughs> yeah. And um, and yeah, so I wanted to have Leon on because, you know, he's kind of uh, I, w- I, w- I won't say any of us are experts in Mishima, but all fans. And Bryce, I think, will be a good foil as someone that hasn't been uh, uh, exposed to Mishima at all. Um but this film is very interesting. I watched it for the first f- time a few months ago, and I'm very excited for you all to watch it. And I'm excited to have Leon join us next week for a, a what's sure to be an interesting discussion of this oh, film. Oh, man. Yeah, very I'm exciting. To it. So, wow. um, <laughs> Chris, you want to close I'm like, I'm like ever shook. an essential viewing. Like, the surprise Discord, guest star. Like, <laughs> when, I, when I heard the, the, the note of the sound for someone joining the chat, I was like, wait, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, <laughs> I'm like, my hands are sweating. I was so nervous, like, hoping that nothing got messed up. <laughs> wow. That, that was, that was. That was a pretty suspenseful moment here on on the podcast. <laughs> I'm I'm excited to listen to that one back. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Mashima: A Life in Four Chapters, uh, written and directed by Paul Schrader. That's what we've got for next week. You heard it here first. Thanks for for tuning in. We got a super exciting episode next week. Much more exciting than I ever thought was possible. Um, <laughs> 
So we'll see you then. Um, but in the meantime, I'm Christian Cuevas here with Colby Olin, Bryce Kramer, and Leon Din. Thank you.